Well, welcome. Whoa, 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 that's hot. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you back, if you are back. Uh, anybody here for the first time? First timers here. Okay, well, great to have you. Thank you for being here. Um, and I know there's some of you live stream. I don't know if I, I won't be able to see your hands if you're here for the first time or not, but, uh, but welcome back to Alpha. This is our second week of being together. If, if you're interested, uh, you can, uh, we have CDs over here from last week's talk. You'd be interested in that. Just take, pop into the car if you still have a CD player in your car. Um, and uh, you can do that. Or, or tonight also we'll have copies of this talk when, uh, when we're done. Or you can just go to the Lakeview Christian Center YouTube site and get, um, get Alpha via uh, Lakeview uh, Christian Center on our YouTube channel. Uh, last night I want to... Bring to your attention, I made a, I made a mistake last week. Um, I, I, just one. It was just one. Then I'm, then I'm aware. I said that Anne Margaret was married to Ted Turner. And, and you know, it, that was a mistake. It was Jane Fonda. I knew that. But the reason he was married to, to Jane and not to Anne is because he was more Fonda Jane than, than he was Anne. You know, I... So, so anyway, I mean, I, I, I want to show you a picture because you have to understand, standing up here when you're used to having a lot of people up here and there's maybe, I don't know, 40 of us in the room. So this is a picture of what Alpha typically looks like. So yeah, that's, that's what it typically looks like. And um, those are people assuming the Alpha position because it gets so loud, you cup your ears to hear. Now we're so far apart, we have to cup our ears to, to hear, but... You know, it's, it's difficult. I mean, a, a joke, a joke as phenomenal as the one I just told would just, just, just the room would still be laughing. But I, I think of it this way. I'm, I, I think of last year in the Superdome, I was there for the first game the Saints played. They played the Houston Texans. They were winning the whole, not the whole game. They came back, were winning, and then they, they blew it right at the end. It looks like the Saints have blown it at the end, but... At the end, the Saints have a little short drive, and then Will Lutz steps up, and with time running out, he kicks a 58-yard field goal. The Superdome was filled with people. Can you imagine how loud that was? I mean, I, if you've been there, it's incredibly loud. Well, last night, Will, in overtime, kicks a 36-yard field goal, and this is what he heard. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I feel. So anyway, you know, like, so anyway, this is, so the reason he didn't marry Anne, but married Jane, is because he was more Fonda Jane. So. so anyway, you know, if the saints can pipe in a little music, I'll just go and put a laugh track in there too, just to help you out. So anyway, um, just a quick review from last week. Uh, Much of our discussion centered around uh, faith, that faith is not necessarily a religious thing. Faith is something you and I practice all the time. We talked about that. We go to a restaurant. You just ate that meal. You're still eating that meal. That's faith. Um, You drive in your car. It's faith. You get in an airplane. It's faith. All of life is faith. And we use our brain typically when we exercise faith. Faith doesn't have to be blind. We think of faith as blind, but faith is rational. 
Oftentimes we engage, we look at the evidence, we come to a decision. And I asked you guys a question last week, or I told you a question that I ask most of the time, well, every time we do Alpha, and that is with a room full of people, I will ask a room full of people the question, how many of you believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever and you think it's going to be good? Well, uh, virtually every hand in the room goes up. The, qu- the question I then ask is, why do you believe there's something on the other side of your last heart? Because so few of us have really ever engaged our brain when it comes to thinking about what's on the other side of our last heartbeat. Like I said, we spend so much time critically researching things that are going to last a very short period of time. Where are we going to vacation? Where are we going to live? What's our occupation going to be? Uh, what's the best brand of rechargeable drill? You don't want to make a mistake on that. Uh, best cell phone policy, things like that. But for some reason, when it comes to what we say we believe is going to last forever, well, I hope it's going to be good. I, I think it's going to be good. I, 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 I pray that I die on a, I die on a good day. Um, things like this, we really, but we really don't know. Can we know? Can we know what's on the other side of our last heartbeat? Well, that's week four. So that's just a little intro to week four. But the question is, do we have to throw our brain away, check it at the door, to consider spiritual things, religious things, things that deal with God? And the argument here is, no, we do not have to. Because each of us, you know, regardless of our, our intellect or status in life, every one of us has a worldview. Every one of us has a philosophy of life. And that is held by faith. And so we're going to spend the night talking about evidence to support a faith position in Jesus Christ. Is there any evidence really to support Jesus? Or is just what you read out of religious books and things like that? Is there evidence to support faith in Jesus? Well, I, I believed, growing up, I believed in a Jesus that really didn't exist at all. Uh, I had created a fictitious character named Jesus but he was not to be found in the pages of the Bible. But when I was introduced to the Jesus of history, not the Jesus I had created out of my personal stereotyping convenience, and I became a Christ follower some 44 years ago, he changed my life completely. But it was really then that I began to study some evidences to see if there is reason to consider faith in the person and claims of Jesus Christ. What's the evidence? Is it rational? Do I have to throw my brain away? Well, let's just look into our manual tonight. If you've got your manual, we're going to look in in page 12. And one of the arguments is that he existed. First and foremost, he existed. Oh, by the way, if you're watching live stream and you don't have one of these manuals and you would like us to get you one, well, we would be happy to get you one. If you would just email us, at alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com, we will get you a copy of this manual if you'd like one. Alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com so you can follow along with us. So, um, but he existed. Now, and it, so here's the thing. What's he just legend? Some people would like to say that he's legend, but th- that's really far-fetched because to say that Jesus is legend, you basically have to say that Caesar 
was legend, or Plato was legend, or Socrates was legend, or Alexander the Great was legend. You basically have to throw them all out if you're going to throw out the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ because there are so many extra-biblical historical accounts of him. When I say extra-biblical, I mean outside of the Bible, independent, separate writings of Jesus. We have several historians, uh, Josephus, Suetonius, Pliny, the younger. These are all first-century Roman historians, his disciples that did not write inside the pages of the scripture as did the apostles. One of the, uh, considered the greatest uh, Roman historian is a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus. I'll just give you a little snippet of what Tacitus said. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report that he had burned Rome, that is that Nero had burned Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of its procurators, Pontius Pilate. And so just in this historical statement by by Cornelius Tacitus, we see Pilate, we see Jesus, we see his disciples. And there are many, many, many other examples just like that. But you know, a good question is, hasn't the New Testament or the teachings of Jesus been changed over the years? How can we possibly know what the original documents say? Well, the fascinating thing is there's tremendous evidence to support the veracity of the New Testament. It was interesting. uh, Annette and I were talking to uh, a young man, just a a couple of months ago, when we were talking about the New Testament, and this is the very question that he asked, is well, how do you know that the New Testament, how do you know that those books that were written, those letters that were written so long ago are the same books that we have today? And I think that is a great, insightful question. And one of the ways in which we know that is there's a, a science called, and I want you to just maybe take in your book and, and, and write this down on maybe page 13. Uh, just, you, you can take some notes here. Um, that, that something called textual criticism. Textual criticism is basically a science, a literary science, whereby you can determine the validity or the historicity of an ancient document. And inside of textual criticism, there's a test called the bibliographical test. Don't worry about spelling that correctly, correctly but bibliographical test. And inside the bibli- bibliographical test, there are, there are three tests, three determinations to determine the validity of an ancient document. The first one is the quantity of the manuscripts. Okay? How many are there? How many handwritten manuscripts, simply means manus- hand, manuscript copy, how many handwritten copies do we have? The quantity of manuscripts. The second is the quality of the manuscripts. The quality of the manuscripts doesn't mean how pretty they are or necessarily how well-preserved they are. Quality deals with consistency. In other words, let's just say you've got 10 ancient manuscripts written by the same person about the same topic. Is manuscript 1 saying the same thing as manuscript 10, as manuscript 5, or is there contradiction within those, those copies? Is there contradiction in those manuscripts? And so quantity of manuscripts, are they consistent? Are they saying the same thing? Are they contradicting? What are, or, or, and then the time span is the third one. The time span means from the original autograph to the first copy showing up. Okay? So when the author actually sat and penned it to when we see the first copy showing up of that, uh, of that original writing. 
And I'll just give you some of the examples of that. Let's just look at a couple of, of historians here. This is Herodotus. Okay, he was a Greek historian, wrote about the Greek-Persian uh, wars. Lots of Greek history coming out of this guy. He wrote from 488 to 428 B.C. His, the earliest copy we have is 900 A.D., a time lapse. We don't see copies of Herodotus' work until 1,300 years after. Now, in your book, you're going to see that we only had eight copies, but recently there have been more copies discovered, so we're up to about 117 copies of this Greek historian, okay? What, considered one of the greatest. Then um, the other, Thucydides was another Greek historian, wrote of the Peloponnesian Wars, uh, Sparta versus Athens. These, he wrote about 460 versus 400, earliest copy, 900, time lapse, about the same, 1,350 years. And now we've got about 104 where we only had eight of his as well. So now we've, you know, there's been more archaeological digs, more discovery, and, and therefore we're coming up with some more copies of Thucydides' work. And then Livy, Roman historian, considered the top three historians of Rome, wrote between 59 B.C. and A.D. 17. We've got some copies in the 400s, time lapse, about 400 years. And now we've gone from about 20 copies of Livy to about two about 169 copies of Livy. So you see here, these are some of the greatest, most preserved historians' writings. Well, let's just take a look at that compared to the New Testament. The New Testament, obviously, the testimony of Jesus Christ, written between 80, 50, and 100. Some say between 40 and 100. That's fine. The earliest manuscripts we have are AD 130. Uh, some argue that we found some fragments of the New Testament with around 75 Okay. Time lapse, 40, 30 to 40 years. Now look at the number of copies. Extant, that means they're existing. Okay, just existing copies. 5,795 copies of the New Testament. Okay, we have either fragments or full copies of, uh, of, the, of the letters. And then the accuracy, I think this is what's interesting. So we talk about the quantity of the manuscripts. We talk about the, uh, the quality of the manuscripts. We're looking here at when you take 5,795 fragments and whole copies of the 27 books of the New Testament, you've got 99.5% accuracy. And where there's not accuracy really has to deal with maybe a word was misspelled, put out of place, something like that. But nothing deals with the tenet faiths of Christianity. So I think this is really fine. This is really amazing. Actually, the historian that comes closest to um, the New Testament um, is, is Homer. I mean, Homer is one to look at here. Uh, laugh track, please. Um, so, okay. Um, um, but really, this Homer, um, you just got what you, you know, you got to make it happen. Um, so here's Homer, Greek poet. Remember him? We hated reading him. Do you remember that in school? Yeah, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but written 800 B.C., earliest copy 400. We've got now 1,757. For the longest time, we had just about 643 copies of him. And so we, we, we see uh, that nothing holds a candle to the copies of the New Testament. So if you're going to throw out the New Testament as being a valid work of antiquity, You've got to throw everything out. You cannot use the textual critical te- uh, testing if, and use it c- 
comparatively across the board if you're not, if you're just going to throw out the New Testament. It doesn't mean that the New Testament is divinely inspired. It means if you're going to look at it as a, as a historical document, it deserves every bit of credence and attention as any other book of antiquity. So, so let's look at, um, there's a historian, F.F. Bruce, was out of the University of Manchester in England, uh, died, died in 1990, but he was a professor of New Testament criticism. And this is, this is what, what Bruce had to say. He didn't have to say that. Here he is again, going backwards. Okay. He says here, pertaining to those listening to the teachings of the apostles, he says, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well-disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulations of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves know, had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. See, they're writing these books, rather these letters, at the same time that people are still alive, they are being passed around. And so when these copies are being made, people are living at that time to be able to either corroborate, you know, or be negatively critical of them. You see on page 14 that uh, the Bible declares, as we look at who Jesus, continue to look at who Jesus is, that he was fully human. Uh, he had a human body. He got tired. He got hungry. He had human emotions. He got anger, love, sadness. He had human experiences, temptation, suffering. He learned. Uh, he worked. He was obedient. But here's the real question. Here, here is the real question. Was he more than just a man or a great human teacher or a religious teacher? Well, let's look and see what the scripture says that Jesus had to say about himself. We're on page 15 if you're following in the manual. I want you to just write some of these things down here after the scriptures that we look at. Here's a scripture we looked at last week. Jesus said, I am, and I, now I'm underlining, these are not underlined in the scripture, I'm, I'm underlining these for emphasis. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so again, as we talked about last week, Jesus is making a statement here about being the bread of life, about being uh, water that gives a, that satiates our thirst. So I want you to, I just want you to feel like what he's saying here is that he fills our emptiness. He fills our emptiness. He nourishes our souls. That, that's the claim that he's making. Maybe true, maybe not. But that's the claim that he's making as bread, as the one who thirsts. Now, John 8, 12. Let's look at this. 
And again, when we look at John 8, in, in the Bible, there's the Gospel of John. There eight, this is the 8th chapter and the, the 12th verse, for those of you who may be wondering what those numbers are after the name. This is what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, this is the second scripture that we've looked at where we see Jesus is saying, I am. He's not just saying his teachers are, his teachings are, the books he's going to have left are. He's saying he is. He's pointing his teaching to himself. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What he's saying here is that he gives direction. You can just write that after that scripture. He gives direction. He gives purpose. He shows the way to go. You're in darkness, he says, without him. I'll give you purpose and direction. In the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th verse, uh, this is what Jesus said. He said, come again to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. What we're seeing here is Jesus is making these claims of himself is how personal he is. The personal care, even the intimacy of the statements that he, he makes. So here when we see this, what, what do we see? We see Jesus saying very clearly, I will give you peace. I will give you a sense of belonging. I will give you comfort. Do you see that? You can see that in all of this. He's saying, he will do that. And then one, I want to add one, because I think this is too important to miss, so I add this. If you just want to write this in your notes, it's John, the 11th chapter, and verse, the 25th and the 26th verses. This is, this is what Jesus says, again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies, and everyone who... Um, who believes in me shall live, pardon me, shall never die. And then he asks this question, do you believe this? Now this, this I couldn't look at this scripture and not go back to our, our, little, our little cute little ruler here and our, so remember last week we talked about the fact that this is physical life right here. This is physical life. This is the beginning of life, the end of life. Remember, I asked the question, how many believe some, there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever and you're thinking it's going to be good? Okay, well, here's the beginning of life. Here's the last heartbeat. You say that you believe there's something after that. So here's what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies or even when he dies. So every one of us is getting to this end point. We're a couple of more heartbeats closer to this happening than we were when the, when the morning started. Right? And so, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you see that? So what he's talking about here is not just physical life. He is talking about life that will last forever. The one who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus is saying beyond, beyond the dash of physical life, there is the line that lasts forever. And he's saying, if you believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, when you die, you will have life. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Do you actually believe this stuff? 
think that's a question for us to talk about tonight. Do we believe this? And if so, what does that mean? What relevance does that really have? And we see here that it's an, an interesting thing, too, is that Jesus' teaching really centers on himself. His teaching centers on himself. Let's look a little bit further down in the page uh, where it says that, that Jesus made indirect claims as well to his deity. I'm just going to tell you a little bit from Mark chapter 2 right now. In the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark, you may want to talk about this at your tables or amongst yourselves tonight after uh, I'm done here. But Jesus is gone to a city called Capernaum. He is in a house, and the house is packed with people wanting to hear him teach and do many of the things which is reported in the, in the New Testament that he did. Some friends had a paralyzed friend, and they wanted to get him into Jesus. They couldn't get him in to Jesus, and so what they did was they went through the outside stairs and up to, onto, onto the flat roof of the house, and they took apart the roof. And as the scripture says in Mark 2, they lowered him in front of Jesus. Interesting. I, I don't know if, if you were the woman of the house, how you would have felt about that. But... <clears throat> But he gets lower to him, and, th- and this is what the Bible says Jesus said. I want you to check this out on your own, Mark chapter 2, because as I've told you, please don't believe anything I'm telling you. Check this out for yourself. Mark chapter 2, it says, Jesus, looking at the faith of his friends, those ones who just lowered him down through the roof, looked at that man, paralyzed man, and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Kind of a strange statement. The guy didn't come there to get his sins forgiven. He wasn't doing a confession. He was coming there to get healed. But there were religious people present. And the Bible says that Jesus, knowing the thoughts of those religious people who had set their eyes on Jesus and were against him, said to themselves, who is this that forgives sins? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And Jesus The Bible says, Jesus, discerning their thoughts, said to him, what is easier for me to do? To say to this paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus said this, so that you will know, that you'll know that the Son of Man has the power and the authority to forgive sin, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the Bible says, immediately, The man sprung to his feet, took his bed, and walked out of there. See, when he says your sins are forgiven, no one can forgive sin but God. Our our sin, folks, if what the Bible tells us is true, is against God ultimately. So it is his forgiveness we need ultimately. And so we see there an indirect statement about Jesus' deity. We see a little bit more of a direct statement in the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter. You may want to write that down in your notes because I don't think that is... It, it, I think it is in your notes, but I haven't looked to see. No, maybe it's not. John 8, it starts in the 56th verse, but I'll just tell you the story. Jesus is speaking again to the religious leaders. And Jesus is having a conversation with them about Abraham who lived centuries before. And Jesus said to them, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, maybe you've heard that before. If you watch the Ten Commandments or anything like that, you've, you, you, you maybe have heard that. But when Jesus says, I am, they, the, the Jews immediately know that he is calling himself God because in their mind, they can go back to, immediately go back to Exodus chapter 3 where 
Moses is standing at a burning bush. God is telling him to go into Egypt and to say, let my people go. And Moses says, who do I say has sent me? Because there's power and authority in the name. And God says to him, tell them, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, they immediately go to Exodus 3. It's like you and I. We talk about Saints win the Super Bowl. We immediately go to what? Tracy Porter intercepting Peyton Manning and running for a touchdown. I mean, we just associate things, and they're associating this, this statement by Jesus as what was given by Moses centuries before. So he's making a direct claim to his deity. Does that mean it's true? Um, not just because he said it, but it's clearly there. If we're going to find out what's inside the Bible, it's good for us to dig inside the Bible and find out what is, who is he? Who does he really, what does he really have to say about himself? Well, look, let's, let's just let's cut to the chase and, 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 and ask C.S. Lewis to help us here for a bit. Remember uh, C.S. Lewis, um, he was a professor of, of uh, ancient English uh, literature at both Cambridge and Oxford, I believe both universities. And he came up with something called, well, he didn't come up with decision tree analysis, but decision tree analysis is basically taking complex issues and, bringing, and, and melting them down to their, their simplest components. And so here's the question. Jesus claimed to be God. Well, he either was, it was true, or he wasn't. Now, if he wasn't, he was, he either knew it, or he didn't know it. You got that? He either knew he was or he didn't know he was. If he, did, if he knew that he was, well, he's a liar. If he knew he was not the Lord, God come in the flesh, he was a liar. Okay? Not only was he a liar, he was a hypocrite. Why a hypocrite? Because everything he said about himself was that he was the truth. Right? I am the way, the truth. My word is truth. Follow me. He's telling all these folks that I'm it. I'm the Lord. I'm God incarnate. Not only that, he was a demon because he's telling them, I'm the way to have eternal life. Follow me. I'll give you life. But he was lying and he knew it. He was a demon. And not only that, he was a fool. He was a fool because he died for something full well knowing it wasn't true. Was he a liar? Or maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he thought he was somebody he wasn't. Maybe he just thought he was God. He was just a fruitcake. I mean, he was a lunatic. But how much sense does that make when you see this man for three years with his disciples? I mean, I can't be three minutes with somebody before they, I, they know I'm not who they may have thought I was. Um, but three years with this man. He stands before the most brilliant Jewish minds of the time, scrutinizing everything he does, every word he says. He stands before the Roman authorities without blinking an eye. He speaks clearly to them. And then he stands before death itself and doesn't winnow or wither a bit before it. Lunatic, uh, that's, that's a stretch. Sincerely deluded, kind of difficult to swallow that. 
But look at what C.S. Lewis said about him, which I think is so very interesting. Lewis says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Well, that is a pointed statement by Lewis that I think is worthy of our consideration. So was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Well, if not, we're really left with one choice. Lord, he actually is who he says he is. And if this is the case, it brings to you and me a choice. A choice to either reject that truth or accept that truth. Now, what evidence is there that supports what he said? Okay, I mean, these are statements. We've got a lot of copies of books and letters and all that coming together, but does that make it true? No, it doesn't make that true at all. But what evidence supports what he said? Well, his teachings, you could say, the clarity of his teachings, the consistency of his teachings, the wisdom of his teachings... You could say the miracles, certainly. Incredible numbers of miracles that Jesus allegedly performed. Uh, his character, just his, his very being, his stature. Uh, Old Testament prophecies. If you look into the Hebrew scriptures, which we're not going to be able to do tonight, but we will in a future week, we'll see the numbers, the hundreds of prophetic words spoken hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the, was incarnated, that he was the fulfillment of. Those are all pieces of evidence. But Christianity rises and falls upon one evidence. And this is what that evidence is. Did he come out of that tomb alive that first Easter morning? Did he come out of the tomb alive that first Easter morning? If not, Christianity is a farce. It is not to be believed. It is dangerous. It is built on lie after lie. Now, the Apostle Paul, who was the former persecutor of the church, he was Saul of Tarsus. He murdered Christians. He imprisoned Christians. He hated Christians. But this man had an encounter with Jesus and wrote 13 books of the New Testament, the most books of the New Testament. This is what Paul has to say in, the, in his letters to a church in Corinth, in Greece, as he is making sure they understand what the gospel is. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, And then he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. 
and then to the 12 together. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why is that important? It's evidence. Though some have fallen asleep, in other words, have died, thus, it says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And then Paul goes on to write here, interestingly, so he says, and if Christ has not been raised, see, Paul's not shirking this most important ar- uh, argument of Christianity. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be found that we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't. Do you see this? Paul is not running from this. He is making a strong point that the resurrection of Christ is the evidence that supports all of his claims. You know, interesting thing, I'm going to touch on another point in just a minute, but I don't want to forget this. You know, if you take every religion of the world, if you take, let's just say, Muhammad and Confucius and Krishna and Buddha, uh, did I say Muhammad already? Okay, I, I gave him double credit here. So if you just, you take them and you remove them from their teaching, their religious tenets are in perfectly good order. But you cannot remove Jesus from his teachings because all of his teachings are predicated and found and centered on his work, what he did. Buddha would say, do not look at me. Do not look at me. Look at my teaching. Muhammad would say, don't look at me. Look at my teaching. Jesus says, look at me and you see my teaching. Doesn't make Christianity true and the other one's false. It's just a very interesting delineator. Here's what Paul also had to say about Christ, possibly, if he's not raised. He says, if Christ is not, has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You think the point's been made pretty hard here? Resurrection is not an optional tenet of Christianity. But if he is raised on that third day, that that truth brings validity to all that he said. And of course, many have tried to explain away his resurrection through the years. Many have tried to explain it away and, and had a very difficult time doing it. Because no matter what your argument is, the tomb is empty. Well, what are some of the arguments that have come forth? Well, one of the arguments has been that the women, early in the morning, went to the wrong tomb. And maybe they did, but they didn't. But if they had, if they'd gone to the wrong tomb, somebody would have been happy to show them where the right tomb was. Um, Possibly the disciples stole the body, you know, um, they just went in, they wanted this thing to go on, man, they were hoping maybe they could at least get some more money out of this thing or something, so what they did was, now remember, what did they do right before Jesus was handed over to the, to the guards? They scattered 
They ran. They wanted nothing to do with him. Okay, but now what they did was they, they mustered their strength and they went after a Roman guard, took out the Roman guard, moved the stone, grabbed him, came out with him, dead, stinking. They did all that. And then, ah, oh, they died knowing full well that they were dying for a lie. Now people, people won't die for a lie believing something's a lie. Or knowing something's a lie. They died because they knew the truth. They had seen the truth. They had handled the truth. The thought of the disciples stealing the body does not make any sense. Because eventually somebody's going to break. Eventually somebody always breaks. Well, maybe the Jewish officials stole the body. Maybe that's what happened. The officials stole the body because they were afraid that Jesus, you know, the disciples were talking about his resurrection. He was talking about his resurrection. So let's get the body, make sure this doesn't happen. Well, if they did that, guess what happens when the disciples go to the tomb and he's not there and they start celebrating his resurrection? Well, you know what they do. The same thing you'd have done. Uh, Excuse me, we've got him over here. Again, the question is habeas corpus. Where is the body? I'm going to... Let me just go to swoon. Maybe he really didn't die. That's it. He didn't die. He just swooned up there on the cross. And when they brought him down, the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him. Then he was able to unwrap himself from about 100 pounds of grave cloths. He was then able to remove a two-ton stone out of the way... He then overcame at least 12 Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers, and then he appeared to his disciples as God having defeated death. Uh, If you know anything about um, crucifixion, um, crucifixion is probably one of the most heinous, torturous deaths that anyone can go through. Um, there is a, there's an article in the, um, the American Medical Association on the physical death of Jesus. And if, um, I, I think we've got some copies for you tonight. But if, again, if you're watching online, just email us at Lake, alpha at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. We want to get a copy of this in your hands. Fascinating article that goes through all the historical aspects of crucifixion. Okay. G- Jesus, before he was crucified, was scourged. He had at least 39 whips with bone and metal attached to those whips, cut through his flesh. Um, His flesh, his back was ribbons. There is blood coming out, sinew showing. Uh, He was probably in shock by the time he got to the cross. He had 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 a crown of thorns put on his head. And these aren't your little everyday thorns. These are thorns like this. He was beaten. He had not slept the night. He had not eaten. He is to bring his own cross. But before he carries the cross, they put a robe on him to mock him. That robe sticks to his back. And all the blood and everything else, all the, all the liquid coming out of his body, and they bring him to the place of the cross, and then they rip that robe off of his back, which reopens all that wound, and blood comes out. And then they throw him to the ground, they put him on a cross, a roughly hewn cross with his back already gaping 
open and they put him on that cross and then they take nails anywhere from seven to nine inches. They don't put them through the wrist because of you, uh, through the hand, because you put it through the hand, it's going straight through the fingers. They put it in the wrist right here where the menial um, nerve is, the ulnar artery is, and they pop that thing through there. And can you imagine when that nail strikes that nerve, what happens? Can you imagine what happens when that nail strikes that nerve? What happens? Can you imagine when those nails, those spikes pierce the feet? What happens? Um, He died. At least it was alleged that he died. But they weren't sure that he was dead. And so they took a spear and they pierced him through the ribcage, through the pericardial sac, into the heart, and out came blood and water. He was dead. No one survives crucifixion and even if he had can you imagine appearing as god defeating death after that there's no way you know and as i said many have tried to explain away um the resurrection and couldn't this is a a british uh journalist by the name of frank morrison the title of the book is who moved the stone and i love the title of the first chapter uh of the book uh can you see that you can't, you can't see that? Okay. Um, here's, here, here's the title of the first chapter of the book. The book that refused to be written. He did his best. He did his best journalistic work. And he ends up writing a book that supports historically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Josh McDowell, another man that was challenged because he did not believe, he was an atheist, did not believe any of the claims of Christianity, was challenged to, okay, Debunk them then. Tell us how we're wrong. Well, Josh McDowell today is probably in his late 70s, if not more, has written enough books, probably taller than I, has spoken across the world to millions and millions of people. And this is a book that we want to make available to you tonight. This is like the cliff notes of the cliff notes of Josh McDowell's work called More Than a Carpenter, a great book. We want to put this in your hand. And for those of you here tonight, we have that for you. And then Lee Strobel was an avowed atheist. He was the chief legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, um, did an investigative study on Jesus, went across the world interviewing people. And he ended up writing a book, the original book called The Case for Christ. And now he's written a bunch of uh, books, of The Case for Easter, The Case for Christmas, The Case for Faith. And so there's another man that did his homework with an open heart and saw it will take more faith to not believe that this man is God come in the flesh than that he is God come in the flesh. So the question of the resurrection of Jesus and who he is is the question that he is asking, I would argue, directly to each and every one of us. This question has echoed who is Jesus. This question has echoed through the canyons of time and lands tonight in the hearing of each and every one of us. Think about that. Here's here's what Jesus asked his disciples. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others still said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But here's the question. But what about you? Who do you say that I 
am. Again, I just mentioned a minute ago, I believe this question is the one that rings from Jesus' mouth to his disciples and echoes through the canyons of history into this room tonight, into your hearing, to ask you and me the question, really, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus Christ did not stay in that tomb and was resurrected? What does that mean for me personally? That's a great question. What does the person of Jesus really have to do with my life and the way I live my life? The more you know the scripture, the more you'll know it has everything to do with our lives if this is true. And then possibly a question we may be asking ourselves even now. Have I possibly not critically examined enough or at all who this person of Jesus Christ actually is? Well, next week, um, we're going to address this. And you're not going to want to miss next week. Please do not miss next week. The topic, session three, is who is Jesus? I want you to know I was personally surprised by the answer. It completely changed my life. Things I had assumed about the death of Jesus, there was a whole lot more than I actually thought. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break. Um, For those of you, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to put some questions up on the screen here. For those of you that may want to consider some of these questions, you can just maybe take a a screenshot with your cell phone, uh, but we'll put those up there for you. But here we're going to take a quick break. For those of you who are joining us live stream, thank you for joining us again. We appreciate you being here. Continue to welcome friends and family to be a part of this. And we hope to see you again next week. All right, let's take a quick break together.